Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person. And I appreciate you. And I know exactly what you like. All at the same time. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, the zen seeker, the artist, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. A gifting moment is always around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Gift easy with Gift Mode on Etsy. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major. Fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. And welcome back to my dining room. Yes, indeed. We brought the show back indoors. Not because of COVID necessarily, but because I've told you that as the show evolves and pays attention to various risk factors with coronavirus, we would bring the show back indoors and not have it in restaurants when a couple of factors existed. One, a super interesting guest and a really important topic that we can't do any other way but via Zoom or virtually. And that's exactly what we have this week. The topic is partially climate change, but most principally wildfires in this country. As most of you who are regular listeners and viewers of the show know, I'm a person of the West. I grew up in San Diego, California. I consider myself, first and foremost, a Westerner and Californian. I've lived in Washington since 1990, but that doesn't make any difference. My heart and my soul are in the Western part of the United States. And what has been happening there for the better part of a decade, not just this year or last year or the year before, has been a steady and dangerous and frightening progression of wildfires, both in terms of damage done, acreages consumed, and wicked portents for the future. And that's our topic. And our guest, I'm very delighted to bring to the takeout, is Lucy Walker. She is the director of a brand new documentary called Bring Your Own Brigade. It premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. You can can watch it on CBSN the CBS News app, and on Paramount+. Plus, Lucy, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. What does bring your own brigade mean? Uh, Well, specifically, it's a phrase that comes up in the movie because um, it's the kind of catty way that people describe in Malibu those who can afford their own private firefighters. So people like Kim Kardashian was on the news for this, but there's actually really a lot of people that do this or their insurance companies do this. And um, the bring your own brigade people are the people with their own private firefighters. But I think more broadly, it refers to uh, that tension with the community and the individual, with how we approach big problems like firefighting and, and also this sort of, are we on our own? 
as the fire approaches, we meet a lot of people who are staying and defending their own homes. So I think there's a few meanings wrapped up in there, but specifically about people with private firefighters. And we'll get back to that private firefighting force later on in the show. But I want you to communicate to my audience, Lucy, if you'd be so kind, how this project began and what you were able to witness as the project unfolded before your eyes in unexpected ways. Sure. It just began. I'm a Brit. I lived in New York and I moved to California and I was confused. When I saw these fires, I thought, why can't we just put them out? Mm -hmm. And that kind of curiosity, I knew there was more to it because if we could put them out, we'd be putting them out. Um, And yet people were just sort of driving on by. And then there was the biggest fire ever in California history, the Thomas Fire. I think it's now been knocked down to number eighth and that was only four years ago. So the biggest fire ever in California history came along the Thomas Fire. And I had friends who were both firefighters and residents caught up in that. And it was so dramatic what they were going through. I thought, my God, this is so horrific and sort of noteworthy. Somebody should be making a film about this. Come on, we're in California. There are so many fantastic filmmakers. Why is nobody kind of exploring this so that I can understand it? Because documentaries are, for me, a really great way of, you know, following a story, meeting some characters, but really also kind of getting to truly understand something by having an emotional experience and really kind of meeting people who are going through it. Um, And eventually I thought, gosh, that had better be me making it because no one else seems to be doing it. And while you were doing it, something else unfolded, true? Well, about a year later, I'd already been making this film, but another bigger fire came along and I thought, well, I'm now making a film about the second biggest fire in California history already. So let's look at the big picture. I think, you know, it became inadequate to just sort of look at one fire. And then um, the sort of worst week ever in California fire history came along and 88 people died in Paradise and Malibu in, in separate incidents, but that were driven by the same wind event. And we were already embedded with firefighters. We knew the firefighters that were sent in. We knew how to get across the um, cordons in California. And and I knew what I was looking at. And we were financed. So I just sort of got in there and got all this extraordinary footage and met all these incredible people, both residents and firefighters. And sort of used these two fires as a case study through which we can really understand the whole big picture. And I want to drive that home for our audience, because having watched a good portion of the film, I want them to understand this is not news footage. This is your footage. You were there. You were both a documentarian, an eyewitness, a participant, and I imagine someone who at times was fearful. Yeah, you hear me having a panic attack in the movie um, off camera, but I put that in so you can relate to how frightened I was. And... uh, we also gathered a lot of material from the people that we met who would sort of, I'd meet them, they'd tell me their story and they'd airdrop me videos that they'd been filming during the incident. And we also got, free, we filed freedom of information requests. So we had all the 911 traffic and uh, 911 calls, radio emergency first responder traffic, I should say 911 calls. So we had this um, extraordinary sort of wealth of documentary material that we could edit together. So you really get this visceral experience of what it's like being inside the fire. And actually I've been talking to a lot of uh, news anchors who've been introducing the film and, and talking to them and the, the people that have done the fire beat and who've 
been on the ground in these fires have uh, told me that they've never seen anything that really makes it feel like what it actually feels like in there. I, th I think it really does. I think you get an immersion into the full horror and the kind of literal hell scenes because when we imagine hell in the Christian imagination, we imagine burning alive and we imagine, you know, fiery hell pits, their flames that we're imagining. And that is sort of what obviously we have here. And so I think it's really intense stuff, but the point was never to just sort of shock and horrify. There are horror movies for that, but the point was to give you a real empowering experience of what it's actually like, sort of your own firsthand experience so that audiences can actually really understand how these events unfold and what information is significant and what isn't. And I gather also the one thing you're trying to express is that this situation and this time and what we are seeing is fundamentally different. Yeah. You know, one can look at, for example, the classic trees of California, these iconic species like the giant sequoia. And these are the ultimate fire adapted species. They've survived through all these fires. And you can see, you know, on the bark rings. But the fires that we're seeing now are burning and killing them. These enormous majestic trees. Why is that? Well, fires are burning hotter. And what's that about? It's actually not just about climate change, which had been my original assumption. It's actually more to do with the fire suppression and the way that we've been putting out fires for the last hundred years. And now there's all this fuel piled up. So yes, climate change is a performance enhancer, makes it harder to fight the fires when the temperatures are warmer at night. Obviously extreme weather events are gonna drive um, extreme fires when there's extreme winds and extreme temperature fluctuations that's gonna drive the winds. These are gonna fan the flames. But what we're actually really seeing is other problems. It's logging and it's um, fire suppression that's really coming back to haunt us, actually. That is the voice of Lucy Walker. She is the director of Bring Your Own Brigade. It is a documentary film of impressive magnitude and scope and visibility, meaning she sees things and you're allowed to see things through her lens embedded with California firefighters at some of the worst fires in that state's history. More with Lucy Walker in our conversation. That film, by the way, you can watch on Paramount Plus, the CBS News app, and also CBSN. I'm Major Garrett. Stay tuned for segment two of The Takeout in just one second. We all have busy lives these days, and we don't want to waste a day recovering after a night out. That's why Zbiotics is the answer we've all been looking for. Their probiotic was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Pre-alcohol produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. This is a proactive solution that wards off feeling miserable the next day instead of a reactive approach like drinking electrolytes or eating greasy food. Enhance your mornings with Zbiotics. Go to zbiotics.com/cbs to get 15% off your first order when you use code CBS at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So, if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/cbs and use the code CBS at checkout for 15% off. Thank you Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. 
From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. How do you not feel like you failed? I mean, it's all on the ground. I'm a firefighter, and this fire just destroyed this town. How do I live with that feeling of, did you do enough? There are a lot of firemen that saw a lot of bad things that day that are questioning whether or not they want to continue their career as firemen. Yes. So, A lot of death, a lot of people burn up, yeah. a lot of ugly, yeah. a lot of ugly. That is a clip from Bring Your Own Brigade. Our, the director of that film is Lucy Walker. She joins us uh, via Zoom from, where are you calling, to, talking to us from, Lucy? Venice Beach, California. Venice Beach, California. So what is that clip about? And talk to my audience about what you are noting there, which is the sense of either hopelessness, fatigue, or both for firefighters dealing with this phenomenon as it currently exists. Mm. So I was really moved by the firefighters, and we know they're heroes, of course. Um, anyone who's met a firefighter has probably been, been really impressed by how incredibly courageous and helpful and kind they really are as a general rule. But I think it's easy to forget how much of a toll this fire situation is taking on them. And with these big wildfires, you're talking about, you know, they, they happen a long way away from often where anyone lives. And with the system of what they call mutual aid, different firefighting forces will send firefighters and equipment to the different fires as they happen, which obviously makes sense to share, share all the resources around. But what that means effectively is these firefighters are going on 70 day long shifts. So you go to work and you don't come over 70 days and you're not not, 17 but seven zero right zero and you may not have cell service even because you're really in the back of the woods uh, out there right and camping and all the rest of it and you might come home for one day and get turned around and go out for another 70 days and that used to be at least only in the summer i mean who wants to be at work for 70 days at a time during the summer but still at least it was a season and you, you had the off season but what they're saying increasingly is that there's no right. off season. Lucy, it's been described to me, and I grew up with fire season in California. We all knew when it was. We all knew what the portents were, Santa Ana winds, late summer, all those things increased the likelihood and the risk of fires. There'd be posted signs in national parks well, and things like Southern that. Well, that's Southern California. That's yeah. where we grew up in San Diego. Right. Right. You see, the fire season actually will start sort of more Colorado, like Washington, mm-hmm. Oregon, and then move down through Northern California and end up in Southern California. So it's it, – it, and, and yes, the dangerous season – dangerous time in Southern California used to be when the winds came, the seasonal Santa Ana winds kicked up before the rains had arrived. Right, but, but now it's fire now, year, right? Fire year, exactly. And um, so these poor firefighters are going through so much trauma. And of, of course, we're learning more about PTSD and how the trauma sort of builds up and builds up. And they're also seeing really extremely you know, challenging and sad things. And they're also, you know, occasionally sometimes being killed tragically mm-hmm. um, in, in, in their work. So I think that something I wanted to include was just that toll that, that it's taking and how there is, you know, we're kind of breaking here. You mentioned in our first segment, and I want to give you a chance to expand upon it, this idea of fire suppression tactics for the last hundred years or so 
and you suggested in the film certainly does, that that's part of the problem. Many in my audience may not understand what that means. Take some time and explain that. Yeah, that's right. I didn't know any of this stuff before I began. I thought that there was a correlation between the hottest summers and worst fires, you know, in, in terms of climate change. And it must be the reason for these terrible fires. I hadn't realized that there was other, other factors. But what's been happening is that uh, we've been logging in these areas. We've been moving into these areas. And so you don't want the fires to burn through. And so when you see a fire, you put it out. In fact, they even had a rule called the 10 a.m. rule, which was about the fact that if there was an ignition, the rule was you had to get that fire put out by 10 a.m., no matter how small, Um, which sounds great, right? Intuitively, that sounds great. I moved here from you know, New York and London, I'm like, you see a fire, put it out. Thank you. Um, However, the landscapes are really designed to burn. They they need to burn frequently. They're adapted to burn as seed pods of these giant sequoias don't even get queued to open until the heat um, and smoke come through. So this is a fire adapted landscape. And if you don't burn it down, it's going to keep growing. And of course, it's, you know, all this incredible, uh, you know, sunshine and the, all the wonderful reasons. We love the beautiful, majestic landscapes of California. And it's so productive and it grows and it grows and it grows. But all that is fuel. And if, if you, you can't kind of reduce that fuel, you're going to have this voracious, enormous fire that you can't put out when an ignition does happen. And even if you're really careful and follow all the lessons of Smokey the Bear, still you're going to have lightning or accidents and once in a while when there's an ignition all that fuel is going to blow up and i also look at the logging which you'd think might be a sensible way of reducing fuel again counterintuitively as one of our experts says in the the film it's kind of like opposite world because you get in there and actually it's kind of the opposite of what you might expect because the logging trucks spread invasive plant species that are super flammable much more flammable than the native species and also these young tree plantations are extremely flammable. They go up really quickly, they incinerate really quickly. And there are towns nearby. And actually something I learned about the Paradise Fire was a tremendous amount of the land between the ignition and the town of Paradise where 85 people killed were killed because they couldn't evacuate in time. And the area that that fire burned through in the first four hours that it raced through faster than any other fire that we know about was a lot of it was under the control of a logging company and it had been clear cut actually in a previous fire in 2008 and subsequently replanted um so it's the logging doesn't help in fact it could be exacerbating the problem and so i was learning really that how we're managing this landscape is kind of all wrong and interestingly and amazingly um, Native Americans actually were regularly burning around their homes and had a different relationship with fire than we do. They thought of fire more as a tool and something that if you kind of used it regularly, you could um, manage uh, food, you could uh, you know, work with different plants to get baskets, you could sterilize or you could um, clear a path around your home so you can see predators or you can uh, get from one place to the other without getting scratched up or you can hunt or also when a fire comes through it won't necessarily burn your structure because you'll have that um, clear space around that won't burn and 
that sort of idea of deliberately setting fires or what might be called prescribed burns mm -hmm. or controlled burns or cultural burns actually kind of kept fire burning regularly even when you lived in the landscape. But of course, now that we're here, we don't want the fires come through. There's just a tremendous amount of fire, of fuel. And when I was looking at photographs before and after, that also holds true in places like Malibu that we think of as very residential. And we kind of think of a suburban and all these lovely trees. Actually, when you look at old photos, there were no trees. Um, it was more of a desert and the, also the, 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 the trees burned down regularly. And when you stop the fires burning regularly, all that fuel is going to stack up. And when the fire does come through, the firefighters, you know, literally can't, no amount of firefighters could put them out. And by the way, we don't have that many firefighters because these fires are enormous, covering hundreds of square miles. And how can you possibly fight all that, especially in extreme weather conditions? Right. And it's very hard to understand that. You just think we need more firefighters or firefighters can do everything. The truth is these fires are not fightable in the way that we might like to imagine. Right. And uh, with the director's mind for time, I've got 40 seconds. But drought is not insignificant in this equation. True. Well, that's absolutely right. So right now we're in terrible drought and we have the second largest fire burning um, right now, the Dixie Fire, and it's a real tinderbox out there. And of course, that's a real problem. That is the voice of Lucy Walker. She mentioned how indigenous people have a different relationship with fire and one that we might learn something from. When we come back for segment three, we're going to play a clip about that very phenomenon, that very mindset that indigenous people have. And that comes from the, fire, the, the, the documentary, Bring Your Own Brigade. Lucy Walker is the director. I'm Major Garrett. Segment three of The Takeout in just one second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. The first fire story is a story of fire that sweeps across the landscape. It's the one that destroys everything. Then you have nothing left. You're devastated. And I thought, our society is experiencing the first fire stories that indigenous peoples know about and then learn to use fire. And so we as a society need to learn that lesson ourselves to come back to those second fire stories, which tell us how to use fire. How to use fire and its destructive capacity the first time around, the first fire story. Uh, Lucy Walker is our special guest. She's, she is the director of the movie Bring Your Own Brigade. That is a clip from the movie available on Paramount+. Plus. It's in select movie theaters. It premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. You can also get it on the CBS News app and on CBSN. So, Lucy, what does that mean, that first fire story, and what should it teach us, if anything? Well, I think that we're coming around to a whole new relationship with fire where we realize that we've got a real problem and that you can't, there's only so much sort of thinning and piling you can do and that fire actually may be a more effective and affordable way to manage the fuels. But of course it is a different world that we're in now. You know, people don't like smoke. Uh, people get afraid that one may get out of control and of course, it's extremely rare that they get out of control, but you're never going to hear the end of it if one does. Right. And, and to, be, to be clear, yeah. we do, through forest management, do have some a few, control yeah. burns, do we, we not? We have a few control burns, yeah, and, and they've been very successful. Um, but it's, it's an uphill political battle to do that, and that's sort of 
part of why part of why we're in the situation that we're in is part of the reason we're in this situation is that we move into areas that we didn't used to be in of course yeah absolutely and with the COVID pandemic there was a fantastic uh study that actually showed we're only moving there faster right now and uh getting away from the cities in other words Forty thousand people moved from san francisco to hi-fi risk zones in in the last year for example um, so we call it the WUI, the Wildland Urban Interface. And it might look pretty suburban, you know, when you check it out. You may not be aware about how frequently the fires burn through there, but they do. And just because your house looks like a nice, uh, safe suburban one, it doesn't mean that it won't burn down when the next fire comes through, especially if it's not built with fire in mind. And something I really learned that was actually really gave me a lot of cause for optimism is that you can burn, you can build in a way that when fires do come through, the house doesn't catch fire. Really? I thought that was really important. Absolutely. So we look at building codes and I think the moment that strikes people the most in the film is we follow these residents we've been following through from the fire and the police chiefs and we follow them through the town council meeting in Paradise where they're proposing building codes, which mean that when the fires come through next time as they for example, are now the Dixie fire started right where the campfire did and is threatening paradise again. And there was already another fire last year um, that killed 22 people that was uh, right next to the, burned to the right to the edge of the campfire scar. So these fires happen all the time in these particularly dangerous areas. And we see the very town where 85 people were killed and 18,000 structures were destroyed. Less than a year later, voting down every single proposal for higher building standards for fire. <laughs> it's really striking because people like their quirky homes. Right. People like their gutters. People don't like regulation. And you sort of start to glimpse how we're in this pickle in the world with climate change, with the pandemic, uh, with these bigger problems where we need to have people come together. We see that, you know, we love individuals and our individuality. But when it comes to getting people together to make, you know, big, difficult right. decisions, it's really hard. And that town council meeting sort of blew my mind so much so that I put myself in the film because I was in the front row and we had a few friends of me in the front row. I was just sitting there having my mind blown that this could possibly be happening. Right. Um, and to and remind our audience, this happened after the fire. After the devastation, after the ruination, still a reluctance, a deep-seated reluctance to approve building codes that would make future structures yeah. more fire-resistant. And the police chief, uh, sorry, the fire chief in Paradise, you know, this devastated town, this poor fire chief, is desperately begging people and explaining that these really make a difference, that if you just do one thing, have five feet of defensible space around your home, five feet of nothing flammable. You can still have glass, grass, but no vegetation. And they have a big argument about how they don't want anyone to tell them about their rose bushes, and they vote it down. And this is the fire chief, and we like we love our firefighters. We say they're heroes, and we give them cookies. But do we listen to them when they beg us to save our houses. And when one house doesn't burn down, it's less likely to catch the next door house on fire, the evacuation routes are stay, gonna stay open, and people aren't gonna die, and the firefighters aren't gonna have to pick up the pieces. But no, we don't wanna to be told what to do. So it's very shocking. 
And, and it's also- not a metaphor. And it's not an analogy comparable to COVID. It's exactly the same mindset. It's exactly the same thing we're trying to, we're trying to cope with. Yeah, that's exactly right. We make the comparison in the film directly between, you know, defensible space, social distancing and the droplets, the aerosol dispersion, mm-hmm. because the fires are not spread in the way that you might think. Again, everything's a little counterintuitive. I learned a lot making this film. They have these ember storms and these embers will kind of like almost like swarming insects will come and they'll kind of be blown. And if they catch on something like an eave or they get up in the attic, that's when they're going to start a fire. And if there's nothing to catch and there's nothing, nowhere to get in and you don't have like super flammable decking and railroad ties that are soaked in the most flammable stuff on earth, you know, butted up against your home, your home was likely going to survive. There was a Latuna fire here where we had an enormously high percentage. I think all but eight homes out of thousands were survived. And yet, you know, I was speaking to so many residents and I made friends with these wonderful people and they'd show me their new building plans. And I think no one is telling you to build in a way that isn't flammable. Right. Like how is this information possibly not being available? Right. And of course now insurance companies, because they do understand the situation because they're looking at the numbers, are stopping giving homeowners insurance for fire. On that basis, right. But by the time the house is already built. I want to ask you to tell our audience about your panic attack. What happened... <laughs> and what you were feeling and let them get a feel so when they watch it they'll get even more power out of it well no i mean mine's very minor the fires across the hill it's not it wasn't even slightly threatening you know in that moment what you see in the film is people's windshield 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 uh, mirror, wing, wing mirrors melting and you see people that think they're dying and you hear people screaming and you hear people burning to death. I mean, it's, it couldn't be more horrific what's actually going on. And my panic attack because the fire was coming over the hill, you know, was nothing. So I actually want to be clear about that. It was nothing. Just for me, fire is really scary. And I think for some people it's like that, but we, we have a lot more material that's a lot more um, heartbreaking and having to sort of edit and meet people involved and but that panic i believe i have to believe was a result if not entirely at least partially of what you were learning what you were seeing and what firefighters were telling you about how speedy and unpredictable the movement of these kinds of fires actually is yeah in retrospect i was not in danger i think that was sort of the beginning of my journey and um in retrospect i wasn't in danger and i became more aware of that um but yeah uh fires kill a lot of people you know and increasingly people are staying to defend their homes and that is blows my mind you know because the fires come through and we speak to the one man in paradise who miraculously survived and the truth is the fire just sort of went around at the last minute but you know and and he also stayed there sweating and um, dousing his house for hours and hours and hours, but it's an absolute miracle that he survived. No one else who stayed to defend their home in paradise um, survived. Um, and it's incredibly dangerous business, but of course, people feel the stakes are very high. They don't want to leave their homes behind. So it's really dramatic what's going on. And it was extraordinary. The fire in Malibu is just up the coast from me. I could commute there. It was just a half hour away. Right. And so to be able to drive to this disaster zone 
where people have been killed and thousands of structures have been destroyed and then come back and you're just in like bright, sunny, business as usual, Los Angeles. Yeah, talk about the contrast. That is the voice of Lucy Walker. She is the director of Bring Your Own Brigade. Stay tuned for segment four of The Takeout in just one second. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Climate change in a lot of ways is a distraction from the issue of fire because paradise was going to burn whether there was climate change or not. Even if climate change miraculously went back to the 1960s level, we would still have a fire crisis. That is another clip from the film Bring Your Own Brigade. The director of that film, that documentary, is Lucy Walker. She is our special guest here on The Takeout. That film available in select theaters around the country. You can watch it on Paramount Plus on the CBS News app or on CBS and it premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. Lucy, many in my audience will say, wait a minute, I thought this was about all about climate change. We've touched on that a little bit. And I don't want people to get confused that climate change isn't a part of this story. It's just not 100% of it, correct? Is there a way to apportion how much a percentage of it it actually is? Half, 60%, 30%, do we know? We don't do that, but it's described more as a performance enhancer. It's not actually what's causing this fire crisis. But it does make it worse. Yes, certainly, because we have drought, because we have extreme weather events, and because the temperatures being hotter makes it harder to make the gains on the firefighting at night. Um, And because the drought makes the fuel drier and therefore more – pardon me? Sure, yeah, more flammable. We know that from our own fire experience, right? But I think what's interesting is I set out to make a film about climate change. I thought, oh, well, climate change is here and happening, and I can make a film about that. And I had two surprises. One was like, actually, it's not climate change that's driving these fires. Um, But ultimately, I wound up thinking that I was making a film about climate change because what we capture when we capture the inability of the towns of Paradise in Malibu, which we look closely at the stories and follow through not just the fire, but the kind of following year, we see that the rush to rebuild just compounds the mistakes. Mm. And the way Mm. that we're living just is going to guarantee that the fires Mm. are just going to get worse and worse Mm. in future. More people are moving in, less people are burning, you know, nobody's burning sustainably. With less insurance, they're going to become Mm -hmm. homeless when they do. They're looking for more cheap housing. They're going to build more in these areas, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, these awful vicious cycles. And you see these decisions, bad decisions being made, and you sort of understand how it really is a film about climate change because actually what's going on with climate change is our inability to get it together, right, to solve our own problems. And so I think that was really... um, striking. But I think also something that was a really good surprise was that if we can separate fires out from climate change, that actually gives us optimism. You know, there are things that we can do so that when the fires do come through, the homes aren't going to burn 
and you know we can we can live with this we can learn how to adapt to this so in addition to changing the way we build the homes what are other things we can do to make this less severe well i think we're learning a lot about um how we build we're learning a lot about logging um uh i think the public is getting educated about um how all this works and how dangerous it is and um, just on simple levels about how important it is to have evacuation plans and not expect them to work because you know communication will be down it could happen in the middle of the night etc 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 i think people are getting um the message and i think that actually how we manage the landscape is going to be something that that we do um you know that is changing and control burns are um kind of coming back and we are sort of listening to indigenous elders mm -hmm. whose technologies we've been imagining were useless and primitive, you know, and I think that's also something I choose to narrate the film, which I've never done before. And the reason I did that was when I realized that actually coming as a European to California and thinking that fire was something that you could control and put out that fundamental misunderstanding that the California landscape, the Western United States landscape was like Northern Europe, where there is no dry season, where there aren't these big fires, mm -hmm. although actually with climate change, we're starting to see them there now too. Um, so you know, one thing yeah. my audience might remember is that a public utility, an electric providing utility in California, PG&E, has yeah. uh, been implicated. Uh, there are criminal charges. There was a civil settlement. It was a bankruptcy filing. What did you learn, if anything, about that part of this story? And it's really easy to blame PG&E, right? It was their electrical equipment that caused this fire. It's most likely their electrical equipment, like just up the road, that's causing the Dixie fire right now. But I think you've got to ask also, you know, do we want to pay more for our electricity? This is hydroelectric power that they're getting in these really dangerous areas and we want electricity or electricity guzzling creatures we're going to get this electricity from somewhere and you know this is the equipment that that gets that electricity and it's really hard to maintain that equipment in these wilderness areas very costly yeah but it's not just electrical equipment you know we've had gender reveal parties we look at two gender reveal right. parties right. that have caused multi-million dollar fires we look at dry lightning last year, all the mega fires that, you know, remember last year we had the red skies all the way up and down the West coast. The smoke was everywhere. It looked like hell. Um, that was caused by lightning. So yeah, we can sit around and blame PG&E and get really worked up about that. But ultimately if PG&E didn't exist and we suddenly decided not to have electricity anymore, we're going to have lightning. We're going to have ignition one way or the other. And when we do, it's going to blow up. Do we need more firefighters and is it possible in this atmosphere, going back to that clip of the firefighter and that sense of fatigue bordering on hopelessness to attract more firefighters? What well, you see a lot of um, anger with firefighters in Malibu in particular that upset me because I was aware that there wasn't a single firefighter at home in LA County and they work, you know, their shifts are incredibly long, <laughs> 30 hour shifts, um, or more, and they don't go home for three days at a time, et cetera, et cetera, even if they're not on the 70-day shifts. I mean, these are not uh, easy jobs. And there is a lot of anger that maybe the firefighters could have saved their homes. And that seemed to be a great misunderstanding to me about 
what's possible and the math of the area and the nature of these fires. Um, but of course, people leaving their house are going to get angry with something. Um, but I don't think anyone wants to pay for these firefighters. In fact, we learned that the money to pay more firefighters was actually voted down after a huge firefight fire in San Diego, actually. And people aren't aware that I think it's 40% of the firefighting force in California are actually made up of inmates being paid $1 an hour. Really interesting story. Wow. So, um, yeah, there was a heartbreaking news story that broke last week about a model inmate who had been fighting fires for $1 an hour for years. And when he was released, he was turned over to ICE and deported. And uh, that seemed like a rough... Uh, a rough deal, didn't it? But I think that that's something, and it's considered actually a, a, some something of a plum job because you're out outside right. in nature, right. I suppose. But it's really dangerous, and I think that's something that people just aren't aware of who we're asking to take care of this for us. That is the voice of Lucy Walker. She is the director of Bring Your Own Brigade. Stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. We're going to talk more about that idea of that private firefighting force. But for our radio audience, we need to bid you farewell. For CBSN viewers, you are enjoying the show. Stay with us for the Takeout Outtake Especial. And that's also true for those on the podcast platforms. I'm Major Garrett. This has been The Takeout. We'll see you next week. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Lucy Walker is our special guest. She is the director of Bring Your Own Brigade, a documentary film about wildfires specifically in California, but also wildfires writ large. It's viewable in movie theaters across the country, select theaters, as the phrase goes, Paramount Plus, the CBS News app, and CBSN. Lucy, I want to talk a little bit, maybe about a minute or so, about this idea of bring your own brigade in private firefighters. How prevalent are they, or are they kind of a rarity? No, they're becoming really common. And in places like Malibu, which is a tremendously wealthy place, um, the median price of homes burning in the last Malibu fire was over $2 million, whereas in Paradise, the fire that burned the same day, it was $200,000. So very different communities. Um, but yeah, it's prevalent whether you pay for it yourself or your insurance company will pay for it. Um, and I think that's emblematic of the way that we're going, whereas climate change begins to hit home, it's going to be the wealthy that can afford to protect themselves. And, and economic disparities are going to separate the suffering from the non-suffering. Yeah, we see some of our characters who lose their homes become homeless during the course of the film. Okay, so... Um, this segment is a little bit on the uh, fun and games side of the ledger, and I know this subject matter is not really one that lends itself to fun and games. So I'm going to put three questions to you that we put to every guest on this program because it helps our audience get to know you a little bit better. So here are the three questions. Take them in whichever order you prefer. Most influential <laughs> book in your life, uh, and for a documentary filmmaker, I'm really interested in this answer. All-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies. And if you're on a long flight or a long drive and you're really going to enjoy some music, I mean, really enjoy it, what kind of music, artist or genre are you most likely to listen to? Mm. Good questions. I'll start with the music. I actually used to be a DJ. I love music, um, but I'm really quite eclectic. I, when I was a DJ in New York, when I was in film school, I actually had quite a successful career as a DJ. And it nice. Great, as it paid me lots of money. I bet. In a very few hours. Um, and as long as I didn't spend all the money on records, uh, it was a great way to earn money at the time. But I always used to say, oh, I play everything except for house music, and I got really into um, house music. Uh, so 
I am really pretty eclectic. I grew up just loving all kinds of music from classical to really pretty um, hard sounding stuff. So um, I'm going to go squarely with like I'm all over the place and I really appreciate that. Excellent. Actually. Excellent. Um, uh, most yeah. influential book? I have um, so many books that I love that it is tough to pick. There's a book that I think is interesting to talk about in the context of my work, which is by Steven Pinker, and it's called The Better Angels of Our Nature. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting book because, you know, right now we might be really convinced that the world's getting to be a terrible place. It's getting worse and worse. Look at the news out there, you know, Haiti, Afghanistan, climate change. I mean, this is just right. really Very heavy. overwhelming, heavy stuff. However, when you take a really long view, as Steven Pinker does, he shows that really, you know, compared to back in the day when 90%, over 90% of humans were living in just direst extreme right. poverty, that's now down to about 9%. Right. And when you dig up those people that were like, preserved in the peat bog that, you know, these prehistoric type people, they've all got pickaxes in their back. You know, people used to die a violent, a violent death at the hands of their fellow right. human beings. You know, we're all fighting each other. Mm -hmm. And he shows that really, um, we kind of, our circle of empathy has expanded from wanting to take care of our family, our clan, our tribe, our right. nation, our fellow human beings. And you might even say that right now, we're kind of starting to become empathetic about um, other creatures, other animals as well. Right. So I'm starting to think, oh my gosh, um, what's Our going on? Our hierarchy of needs has expanded, as the saying goes. Yeah, well, we talk about circle of empathy. Right. And I think that uh, when we look at how that's happened, actually some of that's happened through narratives, mm -hmm. through uh, learning the story of someone who doesn't look like you, you might not recognize as you, but actually when you get to know what it's like to walk in their shoes, and he looks at, for example, how um, uh, novels about slavery were actually quite influential on the people who wound up sort of st standing up to end it. And I think that's kind of really interesting when I think about my work. And I think documentary is this kind of empathy machine that you, you get an experience of what it's like to be a firefighter or a resident and be in that incredibly intense experience. And through that experience, I think you really wake up to uh, what it's like not to be you. And I think you, you, you sort of, it's, a, it's not like, I, I'm not like an activist kind of a filmmaker. I like making really compelling movies that move you with emotions and popcorn, you know, to eat. And um, so I'm not gonna lecture you. I don't make those, I don't think they should be movies, lectures, mm -hmm. right? They're lectures. But, um, but I do think that when you follow a story, you really wake up to what a fellow human person is going through and you're never gonna be the same again. And your heart is a little bit more open mm -hmm. and you are a little bit wiser. And I think that really encouraged me about the work that I do because I've really enjoyed the people that I get to meet. I met these incredible people in Paradise and Malibu and the firefighters as well, and really appreciated. And some of them were really different from me politically. Some right. Somebody told me that climate change is a hoax, for example, which right. is not my belief. Mm -hmm. And yet it was wonderful to just um, get out there and understand what life is like from their point of view. Right. And I really appreciated it. And I can't let you go without asking you a uh, favorite movie or one of your favorite movies. 
Oh my goodness. Um, so many, I'm going to pick one off the top of my head, which is the Philadelphia story. Yep. I don't know. Spectacular, Watch it spectacular yeah. romantic comedy. If you haven't checked it out, folks, please do. It was a play. Then it was a movie. Uh, Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart. It's spectacular. Delicious movie. <laughs> really yeah, is, it really is. Lucy Walker. It's been a tremendous pleasure. Congratulations on this work. Good luck with it. And let's keep in touch. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week, folks. This has been The Takeout. I'm Major Garrett. See you. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Takeout ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.